Hey, people. Good to see everybody. Um, as a father of three kids, I know uh, firsthand that kids love to ask questions. Uh, just the other day, and I should also say this, um, I don't know if I should admit this or not, but sometimes kids' questions are better than others, right? So the other day, my, my, I think my middle daughter, I shouldn't say I think because it was my middle daughter, she asked me very confidently, very um, emotionally, Daddy, can I marry Jack? Jack's her two-year-old younger brother. <laughs> of course, as a father, I say, no, honey, you can't marry your little brother. And she goes, well, that's okay, because at least I can still marry Chief, right? And that's our dog. I said, no, Lucy, that's disgusting. <laughs> Several years ago, though, a little girl named Sylvia uh, asked a much different question. In the short children's book called Children's Letter to God, which is a collection of short letters that kids pin to God and have been published, I suppose, uh, Sylvia asks this. She says, are boys better than girls? Are boys better than girls? And then she follows up by saying, God, I know you are one, so please be fair. It's kind of a cute question, right? See, maybe it's easy for us to dismiss Sylvia's question as somewhat simplistic, but judging by the prevalence of the gender discussion that's, that's happening in our current culture, her question isn't simple at all. It's actually quite complex. You see, gender and issues related to gender couldn't be more, I mean, you guys know this, couldn't be more of a hot topic issue for us. And for some of us, maybe some of us in this room, this isn't just a hot topic. Sylvia's question isn't just a hypothetical question. It's something that's deeply personal. And maybe it's not just deeply personal, but it's something that is a daily struggle for us every single day. You see, how we think about gender, it informs our actions and the decisions that we make. What does is, what is the Bible have to say about girls and boys? What does the Bible have to say about women and men? How would God answer Sylvia's question, are boys better than girls? Well, thankfully, we know the answer is no, because we have God's word in scripture. If you're familiar with the early chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you know that it's in these chapters that we read of God creating the world. God creates and the things he creates, we're told, are good. And among many of the things that we see God create, we see him create human beings. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, God creates and things are good. In fact, they're very good. But something interesting happens when we get to Genesis chapter 2. We're introduced to a man that our Bible calls Adam. And even though Adam is a part of God's good creation, God looks at Adam and he says something's wrong. Something isn't good. Remember, this is before sin has entered the world. So what is it? Well, God says that it is not good that man is alone. So what happens? Well, we would think that God looks at the man and says it's not good for the man to be alone, and so I'm going to bring someone else for the man, a human being. But he doesn't do that. He does something different. He, he brings animals, wild animals, livestock, birds. 
And he, he, he brings these animals to Adam, and he, and he tells Adam as these animals parade before him, you are tasked with the responsibility of naming them. And so these animals are coming at Adam, and he says, hey, that's a bull, that's a lion, that's a sheep, that's a donkey, that's a hawk, that's a goat. You see, this is, it's incredibly significant, not just because the animals are being named for the very first time, but because of something else. You see, with every animal that Adam sees, with every animal that Adam names, he recognizes and realizes something very important. He realizes that these animals aren't like him. And so as the animals come to him, not like me, not like me, not like me. You see, Scripture tells us that for the man, as these animals are being paraded before him, There was no suitable companion for Adam. And so he's alone. But we already know that it's not good for him to be alone. And so what does God do? He does something else. This time, he puts the man to sleep. And while he's asleep, we're told that he fashions the woman from Adam's side. Eventually, the man wakes up. And what does he see? He sees the woman. And as she's presented to him, he bursts into song, and we see in Genesis 2, 23, this is what he says. He says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. What's he doing? What's, what's, what's he saying here? Jen Wilkin, she's, a, she's an author. She's a staff member at a church down in, in Dallas, the Village Church. Most of you are probably familiar with. Some of you heard Jen Wilkins speak last month or so at the Crossing for the Women's Conference. She's got some really great insights on this stuff and on this point in particular. She says that, that when the man says she shall be called woman because she came from man, it's because the man realizes something incredibly important. Unlike the animals, the woman is like him. She's the same kind of creation. And so we could say that, that the man is essentially proclaiming, at last, same of my same. She shall be called like me because she came from me. You see, historically, this, the, the focus of the gender debate, it's, it's been on ways that, that women and men, boys and girls, the ways in which we're different. And I've noticed, we've noticed on staff over the last several years, that there's this common, this growing common misconception in our culture that the Bible supports this crude notion that boys are somehow, some way better than girls. The idea that men are somehow more significant than women, but the reality is this could not be further from the truth found in the Bible. You see, these verses in Genesis, some of the first words in the Bible that are speaking about gender They say that women and men are the same. Different in function, sure. We've all been created for for particular roles in bringing about God's kingdom. But according to God, women and men are the same in identity, value, worth, significance. Boys aren't better than girls. Girls aren't better than boys. All women, all men share equal value and dignity before God because each of us has been created equally in his image. 
You see, and this isn't, it's not an isolated idea in the Bible. This isn't something we just read about in Genesis 1 and 2. We, we see that the Bible repeatedly demonstrates the dignity and value of women for God's redemptive purposes in the world throughout. Right? Think about the Old Testament alone. We read of the courageous life of, of Sarah or the faith of Rahab. The leadership of Deborah, the godliness of Naomi and Ruth, the devotion of Hannah, the risk-taking faith of Esther. Think about the New Testament. Several women feature prominently in the New Testament, in particular in Jesus' own ministry. Think of the faithfulness of Mary, his mother. Think of the servant heart of Martha, The eagerness of Martha's sister Mary to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to his words, to learn about God, to grow in her relationship with God, to learn about the scriptures. And we shouldn't take for granted that, that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, who did he appear to first? Women. I I don't think that was an accident. I don't think it was happenstance. See, Jesus knew what he was doing in spite of the societal and cultural pressures of the day, namely that women didn't have a voice, they weren't trusted, they weren't respected. Jesus goes to great lengths to honor the significance and value of women because he created them with the same value that every human being is bestowed, whether male or female. Now I should say that that, that I'm not saying all this because this talk is going to be about gender and gender roles per se. I'm saying all this because tonight as we continue our sermon series through 1st and 2nd Samuel, we, we meet a woman of great faith. We meet a woman of great beauty, of, of tremendous courage. Abigail is her, is her name. And, and as I've read this story, as I've learned about this story, I've realized Abigail is a woman that I absolutely have a lot to learn from. And I think you do too. So let me set the passage up for a second. If, if you were here last week at Veritas, you caught Austin's sermon maybe on our podcast. Remember, at this point in Israel's history, David, the defeater of Goliath, the, the future king of Israel, he's on the run, and he's fleeing from King Saul. Saul knows that David is next in line to be king, and of course that threatens him, and so he wants David dead. When we get to our particular passage tonight, we find David in an exile of sorts. He's, he's far away from home. He's hiding in the wilderness. He's, he's in the desert of Paran. This is what that desert looks like. Let's pick up the story, chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Not, not 5, 25. 25, verse 2. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep, so he sent 10 young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your servants, they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men since we came at festival time. Please give your servants and your son David 
whatever you can find for them. So let me pause for a second just to say this. So basically what's happening is that, that while David is hiding in, in this desert, he and his men become kind of a, a voluntary patrol for, for shepherds and their flocks, and in particular, this guy, Nabal. This, this area, it's, it's, it's a dangerous area. Shepherds, flocks, uh, they would have been especially vulnerable to outside attacks, to marauders. And so David and his men, they protect these people. And in return for his service, David asks Nabal for supplies for he and his men. Pick up the story. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal the message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to the men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his own as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Okay, before we get to Abigail, we've got to talk about her husband, Nabal. You see, Nabal is a harsh man. We're told that he's mean in his dealings with other people. He's wealthy, he has great social prominence, but he's described as a fool. In fact, his name itself in Hebrew means fool. Verse 25b, this is his wife actually saying, he is just like his name. His name means fooly, fool, and folly goes with him. What kind of parent names their kid fool? Seriously. Now, in reality, it's not probably his real name. It's a nickname. But the point is that fool is what he's called because folly follows him wherever he goes. So much so that when the future king of Israel, David, requests food and water for his hungry troops, men who have spent months in the desert devoting their time and energy to protecting Nabal's flocks, a completely legitimate request, right? I keep going back and forth between Nabal and Nabal. Nabal says, what does he say? I'm going to try and stick to Nabal. He says, nah, I'm not going to do that, Right? Actually, he doesn't say nah. He says, uh, who, who, who are you? Who's, who's David? Who's this son of Jesse that you speak of? You see, Nabal, he's not claiming a lack of information. He knows exactly who David is. He, he refers to his father. I mean, he literally says the son of Jesse. So he, he knows who David is. Instead, Nabal is refusing to acknowledge who he really is. And in so doing, he treats the future king of Israel, his future king, as unimportant, as a nobody, as a runaway servant who failed to fulfill his obligations. It's the ultimate sign of disrespect. It's a terrible insult to David. And so as you can imagine, as we read, it infuriates David. And, and he says to his men, he says, strap on your swords. And he and four others, are, 400 others, are off to Kill Nabal and all of his men. David in that moment takes vengeance into his own hands. All right, let's pick up the story. I suppose just to say, uh, speaking of strapping on, strap on your seatbelt because we've got a lot of verses. One of the servants, picking up in verse 14, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, 
David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So pause real quick. Nabal's servants know that it's useless to reason with him directly. He's so wicked, he's so foolish that nobody can talk to him. And so what do they do? They turn to his wife. And skipping ahead some verses, she, she quickly gathers, Abigail quickly gathers supplies for David and his men. She jumps on her donkey and she heads out to find them. And picking up the story. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her. She met them. David had just been saying, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. David is literally so enraged that he asks God to curse him if even one male is surviving in Nabal's household the next morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. And no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies you will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Kind of an interesting irony given David uses a sling to defeat his enemy, Goliath. When the Lord had fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. So Abigail approaches David, and I want us to catch this before we continue. She approaches her future king, and she does so with such thoughtfulness, such courage. She's firm, yet not confrontational. Her words are full of grace, and they're full of wisdom. And notice how David responds. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. So it wasn't an accident to David that they met. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. 
Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. Almost done. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk, so she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. And his wife she became. You guys can breathe now, right? See, Nabal is a man who ignores God. He's a man whose thinking is foolish and evil, whose words are malicious and full of lies, who hoards his wealth, who hates those who do good, who spurns those in need of help, including his future king. Now contrast that with Abigail, his wife, a woman of beauty, we're told, intelligence, noble character. Abigail is wise and discerning. Her reaction to the foolishness of her husband is immediate and swift. And her encounter with her future king reveals her remarkable skill and respect, not only for David, but for God. And so I don't know about you, but every time I read this passage, I I learn from Abigail's wisdom. I learn from her character. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time tonight is I want to look at four things I think all of us can take away from Abigail's example. Four things we can learn from Abigail. First, Abigail teaches us that as Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. See, Abigail's immediate response upon seeing David in the desert is to jump off her donkey. She falls on her feet and she says immediately, pardon your servant, my Lord. Another translation says, on me alone be the guilt. In other words, literally the first thing that Abigail does is take the blame for Nabal's foolishness upon herself. Now, we have to acknowledge, of course, Nabal's idiocy is not her fault at all, right? But it's important that we notice that Abigail's response, it serves to calm David. It serves to temper his fury, his his vindictiveness. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And we actually know this from our own experience, don't we? I mean, think about your own life. Think about your own conflict. We've all been in conflict with others. We've all been in the middle of an argument or a fight at some point. Think about those times. When has it ever helped in those situations to raise your voice? When has it ever helped in those situations to speak harshly? When has it ever helped in the middle of an argument or in the middle of a fight to blame someone else instead of take ownership for your part? See, of course 
it doesn't. It only adds to the pain, and it makes the conflict even worse, right? So Abigail teaches us as a general principle, her wisdom teaches us that our first response in conflict with others should be to first quickly apologize, to confess our faults, to ask for forgiveness, even if we aren't the ones primarily at fault. And that's really hard, isn't it? I mean, who, who, wants, to, who wants to do that, if we're honest? You see, I, I, I certainly always don't. It's far easier for me sometimes, at least I think it is, to, to ignore the conflict or to blame someone else. It's their fault, not mine. Abigail teaches us a better way. She teaches us that a gentle answer turns away wrath, that we should seek forgiveness. Second thing, Abigail teaches us to speak truthfully even if it hurts. See, I find it interesting that Abigail doesn't excuse Nabal's foolishness. This is what she says. She says, pay no attention to him. He's a wicked man. That's what she says to David. She's publicly acknowledging his wickedness and his wrongdoing. Imagine how difficult that probably was for her to talk about her husband in that way. You see, she had to do it, though. Acknowledging Nabal's evil, it was a necessity if she wanted he and the servants in the household to live. Here's a, here's a question. Have you ever excused someone else's sin because you cared about them? See, Abigail teaches us that when you and I find ourselves in situations involving sin and people we love, people we care about, we can't ignore it. We can't condone their actions. We can't explain it away. We can't justify it. Instead, we have to be people that are honest, both with ourselves and with others, about what's really going on. And interestingly, our honest assessment, if done in love, might actually be the thing that God uses to pull them out of their sin, to save them. I remember when I first uh, came on staff with Veritas, I, I, I was in a fraternity um, at Mizzou. I lived in the fraternity house all four years. And when I came on staff, um, you know, when, when you live in a fraternity, uh, you know, at least my particular fraternity, and maybe this is why they got kicked off campus today, uh, it was like, <laughs> might need to edit that out. Uh, <laughs> You know, li living in the fraternity house, right? Maybe this isn't every fraternity. If your fraternity isn't like this, that's great for you. But for me, my fraternity was dog-eat-dog, dog, right? I mean, it was survival of the fittest. If you weren't harsh, if you weren't sarcastic, if you didn't use humor to kind of one-up the next guy, you, you got run over. I mean, that was, that was just the culture of, of my fraternity house, Right? Okay, so, so that's me. I'm living there for four years. You know, I'm, I'm really involved. And then I come on staff with Veritas and The Crossing. And I feel like as I reflect back on that time, my entire first year on staff felt like one giant conversation of other people telling me of how big of a jerk I was, right? Hey, Kyle, what you said really hurt. Hey, Kyle, what you did was really mean. Hey, Kyle, that wasn't funny at all. And it, it, to be honest, it really sucked. Maybe some of you that know me really well right now, you're like, man, you still do that. Yes, I do. I need, I need Jesus. Um, I don't say that lightly. 
right? It was hard, you know, to have good friends like Austin and Colleen and my wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, telling me, hey, you, you can't do this. This isn't a fraternity house. This is, this is ministry. These, these are people that we have to care about. We need to treat the way that God wants us to treat them, right? I mean, it was hard for me to hear, but it was necessary. It was really good. You see, Abigail teaches us that we need to be people like that. We need to be people willing to speak truthfully, even if it hurts. Because our intention isn't to hurt. Our intention is to draw out of sin. Third, Abigail teaches us humility. You see, I find it challenging that Abigail has the humility to ask David's, for David's forgiveness. And not only that, but after doing so, she, she proceeds to pray for him. She proceeds to pray that God would bless him, that his kingship would flourish, that it would last a long time. See, Abigail is a great picture. Her, her legitimate concern that David was disrespected, God's future king disrespected by her husband, it takes precedent over her own pride. You've heard this before for sure, but... Humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, right? It's thinking of ourselves less. Abigail could have easily said, you know what, David, I, I didn't do anything wrong. It was all his fault. He's the fool. He's the idiot. I didn't do that. If I would have known, I would have said something different. I, but she doesn't, right? She shows great humility in that moment, and she asks for his forgiveness, and then she prays for him. See, I think if you're like me at all, sometimes it's so difficult to ask people to forgive us. It's so difficult to pray for people, especially when we're convinced that the problem is mostly out there, not here. When the problem is mostly with someone else, not with me. Pride, at least for me, it prevents me from owning my part in the conflict. Abigail teaches us a better way. She teaches us to have humility. Fourth, final, Abigail's faith, Abigail's faith in God is the foundation of her courage and the wise counsel that she gives. See, imagine for a second how intimidating it must have been for Abigail to speak to David, her future king, the future king of Israel, and yet we see her do it with such courage, such wisdom. Where does she get that from? She gets it from God. See, it's her faith in God that gives Abigail the confidence and the wisdom she needs to speak into David's life. As God's anointed king, Abigail is entirely confident that God will grant David success in his kingly endeavors. Therefore, she persuades him that he doesn't need to try and bring about success by his own rash actions. Instead, her faith in God points David to his own need to trusting in God's timing and his purposes for his life. Where does the advice that you give other people, where does it come from? Right, you guys are talking to each other all the time, giving advice, hearing advice, sharing advice. Where does, where does the advice that you give your friends, if you're thinking about your friends right now, where does the advice you give your friends, where does it come from? Does it come from God? Does it come from culture? 
come from class, come from what you just think, what your parents maybe told you? Do you have people in your life that can speak openly and honestly, that you trust to speak to you openly and honestly about difficult things with? Are you the kind of friend that's willing to speak into the challenging parts of other people's lives with courage when it's not an easy situation? Are you the kind of friend that is willing to give godly wisdom in these kinds of situations? Or are you giving your own wisdom? You see, we can't have godly wisdom if we aren't people learning and growing in our understanding of and our faith in God. I, I, I love that Abigail's counsel points David and us to God because it forces me to ask the question, does mine do the same for others? And that's the question for you. Does your counsel, does your advice do you as a friend point other people to God? Or do you point them somewhere else? I, I began uh, tonight by asking a simple question. Are boys better than girls? One of my favorite things about this passage is that it so obviously teaches us the answer is emphatically no. You see, only, hear me say this, only fools ignore wisdom because it comes dressed in a different gender. David thought that it was natural and right to exact revenge on Nabal because of his foolishness. But Abigail's godly wisdom, she teaches David. She teaches this future king that there's a better way. She persuades him to resist the urge to seek revenge, to resist the use of violence to accomplish his plan. And instead for David to trust God in his purposes for his life. As the music team comes up, I hope, I hope that you see with David the obvious parallel as the anointed king to another anointed king, right? See, David, of course, reminds us and points us to Jesus, the ultimate example of resisting violence to accomplish God's plan, the ultimate example of trusting in God's plan instead of his own. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus, he's in a garden, he's weeping. If you can take this cup from me, he says. God, if you can take this cup from me, please, please do it. But not my will, yours be done. When he's hanging on a cross, Roman soldiers, people in the crowd, they're hurling insults at him, they're shouting at him. Just come down. If you're God, come down. Now, of course, he could have done it. He's God. Of course, in a moment, he could have had legions of angels at his side, but he didn't. He stayed on that cross. And in doing so, he resisted the urge to seek revenge. He resisted the urge to use violence. Why? To accomplish the will of the one who sent him. Amen.